Good to be back again with you guys. Uh, if this is the first time, the first time in a long time, we've been in this series since uh, the beginning of last fall called The Big Story, where we are going through the big story scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story of scripture all together. This morning, uh, we're going to be in Malachi. If you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Malachi, the great Italian prophet. Um, Malachi, you guys could go ahead and turn there. We're actually going to be wrapping up the Old Testament this morning. Anybody sad to see the Old Testament go? Uh, I feel about the Old Testament kind of like I do the Winter Olympics. It was great while I was here, but there's a much better one around the corner, right? Anybody else with me on that? Like, I, I'm I kind of, any, anybody favor the Winter Olympics? You say that, like, that's number one, like better than the Summer Olympics? Really? Okay, we got a couple of people. John, really? Okay. Wasn't it, can anybody tell me who actually won the Winter Olympics this year? Oh, okay. I was expecting nobody to get, I literally Googled that this week. I was like, I have no idea who even won this year and, and where the United States kind of fell on that thing. But uh, anyway, we are we're going to be wrapping up the Old Testament this morning. And um, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is going to easily deal with one of the more sensitive and touchy subjects that we could possibly deal with here. Um, and it's specifically money. And uh, it's, a, it's a, it not exactly like how to steward your money or how to plan well for retirement so you can have a killer retirement back in the day or not how to gain more of it or get out of debt sooner or something like that, but specifically uh, why you and I should be generous with our finances and give it away uh, to the Lord and to his purposes all around the world. Um, I've told you a number of times before that um, about my barbershop conversations. I have a lot of these around. I always have different barbers, and we have some great conversations in the chair. And I told you a few weeks back, the, uh, the last barber I was talking to was like, why in the world would you ever want to be a pastor? Like, that's the most ridiculous uh, profession in the world. Why would anybody sign up for that? A little while ago, it was a, it was a different concern. The, the guy was just like, so, okay, so you're a pastor. Do you just sit in a room and, like, pray? All, like, what do you do? Do you just pray all day long? And so I'm like, no, not exactly. We got a little variation. But about a little over a year ago, uh, the question that my barber had for me was like, okay, so are you one of those preachers that just is constantly hounding people to give you their money. And I was, I was like, I don't know if I'm offended by this whole thing, or I was like, I, no, no, no. It's, it's just not what we do all the time. And I had to explain a few things to him. It's not what we're doing. But like, this is a very, very touchy subject, right? Like, it's a really, really tough, touchy one. I was reading a blogger the other day, and he was kind of going off about everything that he thinks is wrong with uh, the church and, and, and Christianity in America today. And uh, here's what he had to say. He said, over and over and over again, we have been told to tithe or give a tenth of our income to the church. But where does that money actually go? Millennials, more than any other generation, they don't trust institutions. For we've witnessed over and over again how corrupt and self-serving they often are. Why should thousands of our hard-earned dollars go towards a mortgage on a multi-million dollar building that is not being utilized to serve the community or to pay for another celebrity celebratory bounce castle when the same cash money could provide food, clean water, and shelter for someone in need. It's not a, it's not a completely off concern, right? Like, I mean, I think we get this. I mean, every single week we pass the plates. We talk about tithing and generosity. Uh, you may or may not go online and set up a recurring payment or something like that. You pull up in your bulletin and we've got reports about how we're doing financially and how we, how it's aligning with our budget. And if we're uh, expending on target and things of that nature. And then, of course, you open up the scriptures, and Jesus is talking about it all the time. Over 15% of the different messages that Jesus talks about have to do with money, and it's not all about saving and having this great retirement. So the question that I want to be dealing with this morning, this morning is just very simply why. Like, why is this such a message that gets repeated so often in the church, and why is this such a central thing of what we gather to do 
on a weekly basis as believers. And I think that's exactly what Malachi Malachi is going to help us with this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter 3, uh, kind of jumping back and forth just a little bit ago, uh, just a little bit there. But um, while you're turning there, I want to catch us up again and remind us one more time where we've been in the story. What we've been seeing in the Old Testament, again, is God's plan of redemption, his restorative purposes coming to the ends of the earth, and it's largely coming through the nation of Israel. We've been talking about two major covenants guiding the entire uh, process all along the way. Everything that you're seeing in the Old Testament is going to be touched on by these two covenants. It's the Abrahamic, which is God's unilateral and unconditional, meaning God is the one who made it independent of, any, of, of anything that Abraham is going to do to earn it. Uh, but it's coming to him, and he promises him three things, land, people, and blessing, uh, that is going to culminate in the people and the, the nation of Israel. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant is going to come along a little bit later on. And this is going to be the covenant that's going to mediate their relationship. It's going to be um, the way that, God, that they experience blessing from God and his purposes through them to the ends of the earth. It's Exodus chapter 19. I will make for you, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His desire for Israel is that they would be these mediators between God and man. These mediators between the rest of the world and coming to know the one true God. As God blesses them, they're to then go and be a blessing. People will recognize the blessing as having come from God. And they will come to honor and recognize that he alone is the one true God. Ideally, that's how it's supposed to play out. It does not exactly play out that way. Their hearts are not in tune to follow the Lord. They've got problems with idolatry and generation after generation after generation passes. And God is incredibly patient uh, with their wandering. However, we get to a point around the 700s where uh, he finally hands them over for discipline in order to bring, be, bring them back into right relationship with himself. So you see two major captivities. The northern kingdom, they split into, of course. The northern kingdom is dominated and taken over by the Assyrians in 722. Uh, the Babylonians are the world power about 100 years later. They defeat the Assyrians, and they also take over the southern kingdom of Judah in about 605 B.C. This is going to be Daniel being taken away into Babylonian captivity. Uh, and a lot of these uh, prophetic um, books that are going to be written uh, to the nation of Israel while they are there in exile. The, Jeremiah 25 says that they're going to be in exile for 25 years. So they're well prepared for their time in exile. And around the same time, around 539 B.C., that's when uh, Daniel goes into the lion's den. You also see him in Daniel chapter 9. He's praying to the Lord, and he's reminding God, hey, God, you promised us that we're going to be in captivity for only 70 years, and that 70 years is coming to an end. Uh, remember your promises. Remember your faithfulness to your covenant people of Israel. It's what he's doing while he's there in captivity. Sure enough, shortly right after that, around the 70-year mark, King Cyrus of Persia, the Medes and the Persians take over for the Babylonians. There's a third shift in power taking place there. King Cyrus is now uh, coming into power, and he issues a, an edict uh, which releases uh, the Israelites from captivity. And that's what we talked about last week. It's Ezra chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, there's this proclamation, the exiles that are living there uh, in Babylon, taken over by the Persians, now get to come home. And they're going to come home in a number of different waves. And so that first time, what we talked about last week, is the first wave of people coming back to Jerusalem. They're coming back to destroy Jerusalem. Everything's been completely wiped out. And immediately, God, what God does through Nehemiah and Ezra and a few other prophets at that time is he, he re, reignites a massive revival in the, in, um, it really in Jerusalem at that time. 
They're rebuilding the temple walls. They're rebuilding uh, the city walls at that time. They're reestablishing the laws. They're reestablishing right worship practices to God. And so for the next 75, 80 years, there's massive revival taking place in Israel as they were reminded of the sin of their past, their wicked idolatry and falling away from the Lord. They're bringing back and they're coming back to the heart of worship again. By the time that Malachi comes on the scene, it's about 100 years after that initial uh, release from captivity. Uh, That generation is largely passing on, and the new generation is coming into town. And what we're going to see in Malachi is that we're back to the same old practices. Like the beauty of revival, the fervor of revival, the, the beauty of this authentic worship that's taking place in Jerusalem is now passing away, and it's giving way to an empty religiosity that we talk about a whole lot here around the church. And it's a sad kind of a thing, right? Like they they were reestablishing the right worship practices and they're never again, Israel is never again going to fall into the same problems that their forefathers did. They're not, idolatry is not a problem at this point in time, right? They learned their lesson. Uh, They went away into exile and they're not falling into idolatry. But what's going to take over from here on out is this empty religiosity that really has no genuine roots inside of their soul. And it's a sad situation. I feel like we go throughout the Old Testament, and I keep wanting to tell these happy stories of, like, this, there's this beautiful ending at the end and how Israel finally gets it. They recognize that God is God. They walk in, in unity with him, and it's this beautiful ending to a, to a sad story, but it just never happens because they've got a problem with passing on the faith to the next generation. They're great at delivering the faith. Don't get me wrong. Like, they know the laws, and they know the different things to do. Like, they're great at delivering the faith. They're not so great at entrusting the faith to the next generation. There's a difference between those two things, right? Like, there's a difference between delivering the faith and entrusting it to this next generation. Like, like, deliver, like when I was growing up in elementary school, I had a, had a newspaper route. And uh, you remember what these things are, kids? Okay, so newspapers are these things that, like, like we, we, we chop down a forest and we print, like, all of the news, the world news on these papers, and we would roll them up, right? That, that was the job. We'd get up early in the morning, we'd roll these things up, and my job was to go around on my bike and, like, toss them out into people's front yards. I'm like, that's delivering, right? That's all I'm doing. It's like, I don't care if they pick up the newspaper. I don't care if they read it. I don't even understand. I don't even care if they understand what they're reading in the news. My whole job is to simply deliver the news. And trusting it is what you do when you're about to propose to your girlfriend and make her your wife. And trusting is what you do with a diamond, something of, of, of infinite value. I could never forget. Uh, I would not, in my wildest dreams, imagine like taking a diamond and throwing it at Kat's front door and being like, man, I hope she gets the picture. Like, I, like, I hope she gets the message here. Like, no, no, no. Like, like, there was an incredible amount of care and concern when I proposed to my wife. Like, I planned out the entire event. I had friends and everybody around that were helping me do this entire thing. I got down on a knee, and I had this incredible speech, and we did all these things, and we hugged, and we kissed, and we were, like, celebrating, and there was tears, um, even on her part, and, like, 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 it was this beautiful thing, right? And, and I got on my knee, and I made sure that that diamond gets on her finger, and she's not just hearing about it, but she's actually receiving this whole message. There's a major, major difference between delivering the faith and entrusting it to the next generation. Israel was great at delivering and not so great at entrusting it. And one of the reasons is exactly what Malachi is going to expose here today. They were incredibly religious, but they were not exactly generous. And church, the next generation can always spot out, or they can always sniff out a fake, right? They can always, always, always sniff out a fake. And it's exactly what we're going to see here in this text. So pick it up with me, chapter 1, verse 10. Up to this point, Malachi is getting back into rebuking the nation of Israel for their problems, and it's going to kind of get into the same rhythms. Uh, their half-hearted religious ways. Here, here's what he says in verse 10. 
Oh, that one of you should shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord God Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord God Almighty. When you bring injured and lame or diseased animals and you offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord, like cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was a refugee minister down the street in Northwest Bible, and um, I was sitting in my office one day, and this guy comes up, and he, he knocks on my door, and he, he says, hey, Aaron, I've got, a, I've got a huge donation I want to give to the church and to your refugee ministry and stuff. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is awesome. We, we go downstairs into the parking lot, and he's got his entire truck filled, and he basically emptied out his entire um, this is not a guy that, that went to the church or was even familiar much with what we do, but, um, but his entire church was just filled with, or his truck was filled with, it looked like he emptied out kind of his storage container, um, and, and he was kind of doing some spring cleaning. And we're looking through all this stuff, and I'm not kidding you, he's got old computers that are about 20 years old, like the original computer, right? And we've got Zach Morris phones that are this big and that don't work anymore. We've got old giant calculators that do not work. And we've got all of these different things that like literally nothing in there worked or was useful. And we're picking through all these different things. And I finally had to tell him, I'm like, thank you so much for your, your thoughtfulness. But like literally there, there's really nothing we can do with this. I mean, refi- like they're here, but they have no desire for these things. They can't even use these things, right? Like that's what's taking place. It's bringing leftovers to the altar of God. It's, it's pretty much, it was Friday night in the Armstrong household growing up. Friday night in the Armstrong household growing up was Brunswick stew Friday night. And what my mom would always do with this, we always loathe Friday nights, which is why we always try to, to plan to be away and out with our friends that night. But like Friday night was leftover night. And she would make this Brunswick stew, and all the leftovers from that week would typically go in that giant pot of stew. And it was so disgusting. And we would sit there. I'm like, Mom, is this, is this a hamburger in here? Like, like, is this a piece of pizza? Like, what are we doing with this thing? Like, but, like, like are we re- like, it was just a stew, and here's all the things we need to get rid of and go and eat it. Like, that's what they are doing with their worship practices in the way that you giving over to the Lord. It's, it's leftovers. It's, hey, I found a few quarters in the pocket. Like, I've got a few extra bucks over here. It's like, here's everything that I've done myself. Here's everything that I want to do. And, hey, here's a few leftover things over here. And that's what I'm going to give over to the Lord. Like, a uh, hundred years earlier, like, it was beautiful worship before the Lord. They're gathered in Jerusalem. They're united as one. They're reestablishing right worship before the Lord. And now they're kind of going, okay, well, I don't really want to let go of, of this goat over here. Like, this one's healthy. This is my good one. Have you seen, like, his athleticism is off the charts. Like, this is my good goat. And I don't want to let him go. Like, you can have this blind and lame one over here who's about to pass away anyway. Like, that's the mentality that's crept into the nation of Israel at this point in time. Similar thing in chapter 3. And I want to see the, show you the continuity here in this messaging. Chapter 3, verse 6. Here's what he says. I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. I'm consistent from beginning to end. Yes, methods and means may change. I am the same yesterday, today, and for, yeah, forever. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. This is the summary statement of all of the Old Testament, essentially. Return to me, Israel, and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. And I don't know if somebody needs to hear just that this morning, but return to me and I will return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? 
Good question. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? Here it is. In tithes and offerings. Okay, what? So what in the world does that have to do with returning to the Lord? And that's what, it's exactly what he just said. Return to me, and I'm going to return to you. How do we return in tithes and offerings? Return to me, and I will return to you. How do we return unto the Lord? His answer here is in tithes and offerings. Like on top of that, in verse 9, he says, You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, and there won't even be enough room to store it. It's kind of sounding like TBN a little bit right here. Like, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord God Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. And before we start thinking, okay, well, this is just Old Testament stuff, right? This is, this is, what, was under, this is what was true for the, for the nation of Israel. Like, Paul's going to be saying the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, right? It's an entire passage that's encouraging generosity. And here's what he says. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly is also going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every single good work. Like Paul's going to say the same thing, Galatians chapter 6, a man reaps what he sows. And Jesus is going to back it up and he's going to say, give and it will be given to you. And with the measure that you use, it will also be measured unto you. So there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about the exact same thing. But from beginning to end, old covenant unto new covenant, the principle is still the exact same thing. God generously rewards generosity. Like God generously rewards generosity. And before we start to panic here just a little bit, like I promise you, like I... Cat's not going to start wearing robes to church and putting up this gold, this gold throne on stage or anything like that. Like, like, we're not going that direction, but there's a tension with this principle, right? Like, I, like on, on the onset, it feels very, very selfish, and it feels uh, like just a, a bad, inferior motivation for generosity. Like, like, you should be generous because you're going to be better off in the end, and God rewards generosity. Like, I'll never forget a number of years ago as a... I was watching an old crusade on TV, and I love watching Billy Graham crusades. Um, <laughs> still do. And, uh, but I was watching one of these things, and I'm like, right when, as soon as the thing was done on TV, uh, there's this, there's this uh, televangelist that gets on TV, and he begins selling miracle water. And I was like, what are, what are we doing? Like, how in the world are we going from a Billy Graham crusade over here to selling miracle water on the TV? And I'm, saying, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, right? I'm going, how in the world is anybody believing this nonsense? And he starts just talking about the miraculous power of God, and I'm going, amen to that. Uh, but here's what you need. You need this vial of water, which I've blessed, and, and I will send to you for free, right? And I'm watching this, and I'm going, Cat, can you believe this guy, right? And so, of course, I'm curious, and I'm like, all right, I want to see how this whole thing plays out. So I call the guy up. I was like, I need that miracle water, right? Like, Daddy needs a miracle over here, and so I want to see how this whole thing plays out. Sure enough, a number of weeks go by, and the vial comes in the, in the mail, and uh, I get this little vial of water. And uh, in, in the vial, there's, there's, a, there's basically a couple pages of a summary about uh, the theology of generosity and, and uh, how he rewards those who give unto him and how uh, if I would just take this vial and pour it over my head while I pray and then in that vial put about $50 in there, God will multiply my generosity tenfold and it'll come back to me and I'll get $500. And if I were generous and wanted to put a check in there for $5,000, it would come back to uh, $50,000 and, and, and all of these different things. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, church, that's not what we're talking about here, right? 
Like, this is not what we're talking about. Blatant, blatant abuse, no matter how bad it has been abused. Of course, does God ever bless us materially? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. Psalmist is going to get this. Psalm 89, 11. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that it contains. You founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. In other words, everything that I have is first from you. Like everything that I have has been given to me and gifted to me uh, through you. It is by your hand of grace that I have everything that I have. Of course, he blesses us materially. Um, Paul's going to say the same thing. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Yes, God is able to bless you abundantly, he says. um, But his blessing is in alignment with what you actually need. Right? So yes, uh, his blessing is sometimes materially, but we've got to understand that the rest of the time, the way that he is always blessing us and rewarding us is so much better than just the material. Like Proverbs 11 is going to say that a generous person is going to have a strong reputation and they're typically going to be well-liked. Right? Like, like Luke 6, Jesus is going to say that generosity is going to be rewarded in heaven, even though you and I may not know exactly what that whole thing looks like. And we're kind of going, that's a little bit ambivalent. But like, if he's promising you rewards, I promise you, you want whatever he's offering. Right? Like Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see that generosity produces joy. We're not talking about fleeting happiness or temporary um, uh, for a couple hours a day, just happiness over certain things. But he's saying that the generosity is going to produce a joy inside of you that's not going to dissipate over time. First Timothy chapter 6, he's going to talk about how generosity produces contentment inside of us, and it's going to free us from the love of money. Church, can you imagine what it would be like to be free from the love of money? Like, can we, do you have any concept of how much joy and satisfaction there would be in life if we knew what contentment actually tasted like? Like, can you imagine, like, being able to drive through Highland Park and not coveting everything around you? Like, can you imagine if your neighbors came home with a brand new Escalade in the driveway and, like, you weren't phased by it one bit? Like, that's what we're talking about. He is always rewarding generosity. And honestly, like, you don't even need to be a Christian to understand this part, right? Like, I feel like this is, this is elementary generosity 101. Like, you don't even need to be a believer to understand that he generously rewards generosity. Soci- sociologists... Christian Smith, in his book, uh, The Paradox of Generosity, he argues that there's not just a correlation between generosity and happiness. He says that, there's, that a lifestyle of generosity actually causes greater long-term happiness. Here's just a few of his findings. He says, an Americans who describe themselves as very happy, they volunteer an average of 5.8 hours per month. Those who are unhappy, just 0.6 hours. People who donate more than 10% of their income to charity are 20% less likely to experience feelings of depression. He goes on to say that they can actually observe neurochemical changes in the brain, which give people a greater sense of pleasure and reward for having done something good. In other words, church, like in his design, when he created and designed you and me, he hardwired us so that generosity would be rewarded inside of our soul. And so, yeah, God generously rewards generosity, and clearly this is a generation of Israelites that has already forgotten that simple point. But beyond all of that, the bigger reason why uh, generosity is so central in Malachi's uh, message and even all throughout Scripture is that our giving was always designed to be one of two things, always really two things specifically, an expression of worship and a demonstration of trust. The reason that it's such a big deal is because giving and generosity was always designed to be an expression of worship and a demonstration of trust. 
That's what we're doing every, every single time that we gather to give. It's exactly why it's so important to God because even here in our, in our passage, like, it's not about money for God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything in the palm of his hands. It's not about money. But it says here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 13, he says that they are bringing their sacrifices to the Lord begrudgingly. And they're saying, oh, what a burden this is. Like, oh, what a burden this is. It's not a joy. It's not, like, there's, there's something missing from this whole thing. It's a, it's a burden to give, and it's not an act of worship. There's an incredible example of how generosity is, is supposed to play out in worship in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's easily one of my favorite passages on this whole subject matter. But um, what's happening in, in uh, the church in Corinth at that time is uh, Paul is petitioning them to, uh, to, to give towards a fund that's going to help those who have been who have been stricken by famine over there in Jerusalem. There's a massive famine that's sweeping through the land. And so he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's asking them to be generous. And here's what he says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's kind of pitting these two churches against each other. I think that's kind of funny. In the midst of a, of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I love that language right there. Has anybody ever traveled to a third world country and still experienced Radical generosity. Like I see this all the time. If you travel over in third world countries, like generosity doesn't end because they don't have the exact same means as you. It's not a it's not a rich man's game to be generous, right? I'll never forget this. Traveling in southern India a number of years ago, uh, they took us into this one part of town that was a it was a it was an entire community uh, of castoffs from culture, right? Like that's what they did. It's 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 not a by no means an equal society. The castoffs from, from culture were put in this small town. It was all widows, and it was orphans, and it was people that didn't have a home. Well, the gospel had taken root in that community. I remember going through there, and we were talking with a bunch of people. We were doing some preaching in that community, and, and this little old lady, I mean, not, everything's made of mud huts and barely put together. And she was so excited that we came there to go and to, to minister to them and to touch them and to pray with them and, and to be with them. She invites me into her home, and she cooks me this meal like you wouldn't believe. Like, she has absolutely nothing. Like, eating one meal a day is a privilege and a benefit to them, and she makes me this meal. And I'm trying to, I'm feeling a little awkward about it. I'm just sitting there going, okay, you really don't need to do this. Like, Savior. But it was a joy. It was an unbelievable joy for her to give away what she had um, because of what God had done in her. And we were ministering. We were praying and all these different things. Church, it's like, it's it's not a matter of, of, of how big your income is for you to be a generous person. There's a way for rich generosity to well up in the middle of extreme poverty. He continues on and he says, For I testify, check this out, they gave as much as they were able to and even beyond their ability. In other words, it was more than just this. It was more than just, okay, here's 10%, here's 5%, here's this, that, and the other. They're giving beyond their ability. They're giving beyond that which makes sense for them to give. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, uh, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, here's where it all begins. For you know the what? 
You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty may become rich. In other words, in the middle of this massive appeal to give, he reminds us that the reason that we are to give is because we have been recipients of an enormous amount of grace and generosity from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, speaking to Gentiles, remember that at that time you were completely separated from Christ. You were completely separate and far away. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. And then the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the grace and the generosity that he's talking about. We were lost and completely dead in our sins, wanting nothing to do with the things of God, wandering far from him in the middle of our ignorance. But in the middle of that place, God still fixed his love on you and me. So much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Even though he was rich, even though he was God, even though he owned everything that the universe could possibly be, even though he had everything that you and I could ever imagine, even though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, he took on flesh, he condescended from heaven, he became man, he subjected himself to the torture, to the ridicule, uh, to the opinions of the people that he created, all for the reason that we, through his poverty, may then also be become rich. Church, that is the radical generosity of God. That is the radical generosity of God. So here's how the whole thing plays out. Not only does God generously reward generosity, but generosity then begets more generosity. So his generosity toward us begets generosity in us towards God and towards other people, which he then also generously rewards. Like in Acts chapter 2, it's the exact same thing. The beginning of the church, like never in the history of the church is Has there been a time when people have been more convinced of the radical generosity of God? I mean, just a few days before this, I mean, they've seen Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. Now, all of a sudden, they've seen him walking around and alive. And all of a sudden, they're realizing, oh my gosh, this entire thing is true. Like, he he really is the son of God. He really is the promised Messiah. He really does have power over sin and death. He really is going to be sending his Holy Spirit, which is going to be filling every single one of us. He really is going to come again and make all things new again. And so the next thing we know, here's what we're reading. And all those things, all of those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions were sharing with them all as anyone may have need. Church, that doesn't make sense. That's above and beyond what makes sense to give. That's giving beyond their means. None of that makes sense to do. Why would you sell everything that you have in order to give to other people? Unless you've been feeding from the radical generosity of God for the past 40 days in a room. My church, that's why giving is a critical part of our worship because everything that we are doing in here is in response to the radical generosity of God. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts it. He says this. He says, the kingdom that Jesus lived and ushered in was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. I love that line. Beyond that, generosity is also a demonstration of trust. That's what we're doing. It's a demonstration of trust. And it never, ever, ever makes sense logically to financially give beyond what you're able to give. Unless you believe that God is actually going to provide in the end. I trust is a tough one, isn't it? I mean, I think that we get, I think cognitively we believe that God is the God who provides. Like we understand those kinds of things. We would acknowledge it and probably check that box on a multiple choice test. But typically he does it through different normal means, right? You go to school, you get a job, you earn a paycheck, you pay the bills and how long does it take before you start getting in the rhythm of this kind of thing, before you start thinking to yourself, I, I got it. I got this. Like I'm a better financial planner than he is. 
I think I know what to do with my money, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of time, does it? I mean, that's why from the very, very beginning, like, God is going to say this in Genesis. He's going to say six full days you can work. And on that seventh day, you're to take off and you're going to completely rest and do absolutely nothing. Church, that doesn't make sense from a financial or economic perspective. Like, I mean, crops back then, they had to be harvested every single day. Water had to be obtained every single day. Emails have to be sent and, and chicken sandwiches and curly fries, they need to be made. Like, like, what are we doing here? Like, on top of that, he talks about tithing, giving away the first 10% of your income back to the Lord. That's what it means. And, and then we get to the New Testament, and not only is this concept affirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, but Paul's going to be talking about this radical generosity that's going above and beyond that and, and getting into the absurd category that doesn't make sense because it's in response to this new covenant, this, this radical generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is unmatched in the old, under the old covenant. And you're sitting there going, okay, like, none of this makes any sense. Like, I love what he says here in verse 10. All he's going to say here in verse 10 of Malachi, he's going to say, test me. Test me. Church, test me. Test me, says the Lord God Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there's not going to be enough room to store it. Church, you, we do, you, test me is all he says. Like you, you don't believe that I'm going to provide for you? You think that through your radical generosity somehow you're going to go homeless? Like you really believe that like you're not going to be taken care of? You, you don't believe that I, can, that I can provide for you and your family if you're too generous? Church, I, I, a number of years ago, I, I worked at a homeless shelter. I mean, we worked at the, at the Dallas Life Center downtown, and I've interacted and had conversations with and done a little bit of life with about hundreds of homeless people, and not one of them has said that they were there because they were too generous and they trusted God too much. It's just not the realities that we live in, and he's simply saying, test me. you got a hard time believing that I'm going to provide. If you pull out a couple more bucks from your, from your wallet, like, test me. Church, he loves to provide. It's just who he is. It, it, it's innate in his DNA. It's not a burden. He is a, he is a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. Like tomorrow is Caleb's fifth birthday. And I promise you, like going and buying him a gift this past, oh, it was a while ago, but like it's, it's just not a burden. Like I can't even begin to expri- explain like what an incredible joy it was to go spend money on that child for this day, celebrating him. Like the dude is like, the kid is just nuts, fanatical about all rescue things, anything with a siren, police, firemen, uh, EMTs. Like if that's you, you're his hero, by the way. I, and, and I literally, I went out and, and I found this bike and I went in and I got online and tried to find all these police decals because there weren't all these great police bikes out there. I mean, I got a little siren and put it on there, mounted it on his deal. I've got these stickers that say police and sheriff and I've got this little star on the back of his thing. Right, I've got a siren, I've got a megaphone, right? Because that kid needs to be louder, he thinks. And, and, and so the whole street can hear him, and not just me and mommy. Like, I, I literally, I, it's such a joy. I, I can't even explain like, what an incredible joy it is to come and, and to look at that child and provide for him. It's who I am. It's who he made me to be. It's who God is. He's a loving and good and generous Heavenly Father who loves to provide for the children that he loves. And on top of that, like, he's chosen to tie the success of his mission with his own faithfulness to provide. Like, we got this, like, he's heavily motivated to provide for you and me. His, he has chosen to tie the success of his mission to his own faithfulness to provide. It's what he says here in verse 12. Here's what he says in 10. Test me in this. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing, there, will be not, there won't be room enough to store it. I'm going to prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. Then... All the nations will be able to call you blessed. 
church the entire time, like God's mind is it's on the nations. This isn't about our spiritual and material obesity. His heart is for the nations. That Israel would be blessed. That they would be in right relationship with God. That they would trust Him wholeheartedly. And that they would walk with Him faithfully. That they would give everything back to the Lord and that He would provide for them. And that as He provides, that the nations would see His provision. They would see that He is a faithful God and a good and loving Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. And that they would recognize that He alone is Lord. Church, like the nations have always been in view. It's Genesis 12 too. Like it, it, it's what he says, I have blessed you in order to be a blessing and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Paul says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 9, you will be made rich in every single way, materially, emotionally, spiritually. Why? So that you can be generous on every single occasion. Church's blessing is not about our spiritual or material obesity. It is there so that we can turn right back around and be a blessing to any and all who are praying for the provision of God today. That's what's at stake. That's why it's so offensive that they're coming and they're, and they're doing this thing begrudgingly. If you're coming and you're thinking about generosity with this begrudging, oh my gosh, again, really, I got to give this? You're missing it. You're missing it. It's about so much more than you. He's hardwired everything inside of you. He knows what he's doing. Like your generosity is actually for your good, but it's not just for your good. It's for the world's good. It's what he's doing in the world through his church, through his people, in order to bring blessing to the nation so that they're going to recognize that he alone is God and one day bow down and worship and give him all the glory that he is due. That's why it's such a big deal that we gather and we give week after week after week. And not only that, but that we do it with, 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 with sincerity, that we do it with a joy in our hearts, recognizing that this is about so much more than just me. I'm going to wrap it up with this. A number of... Uh, Back in high school, I had a, uh, a lay small group leader in our youth group that uh, forever indebted to his service and uh, kind of walked with us for a number of years. And I know a lot of you guys serve in the youth group, and, and you're kind of being that for this next generation of people. But this is a guy that was very, very well off in our church and just, uh, just the perfect embodiment of, uh, of a spirit of generosity inside of him. And this guy was just, um, he taught us this prayer that I've always loved. Early on, um, in one of those first group meetings, he kind of sat us down and he goes, I want to teach you this prayer that I pray, and I try to pray every single day. And it was just a very, very simple one, but all he said was this. He said, Lord, let me be the answer to someone's prayer today. Lord, let me be the answer to someone's prayer today. And he would begin every single morning with this mentality and with this heartbeat that's saying, God, I'm offering myself to you, and I'm recognizing that everything that you've given to me, all of my material possessions, all of my material wealth, which we have, all of my emotional stability, which he's provided and strengthened inside of me, all of my spiritual wealth, which he's given to me in the knowledge and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything that you've given to me, Father, would you let me be aware? Would you let me be the answer to someone's prayer today? And I love that prayer, but I love the fact that it wasn't just something that he taught us. Like, this is something that he lived out. This is easily one of those guys in the church that was just always pouring into the church. He understood tithing, and he taught us about tithing, and he taught us about the mission of the church, which is where I began to fall in love with what God was doing in the gathering of his believers. And then it went, it went beyond that, too. I remember a number of times we're sitting there in that group, and, and we, would, we would come together, and we would make these bags. And he's like, I want you guys to initiate this thing. And we would make these bags, and we would put together socks and underwear and, and water and, and granola bars and a few bucks and, and all of these different materials and stuff. And then we would go into the community, and he says, I want you to go find people and engage with them. And I want you to go pass these out. And I want you to pray with them, too. 
get to know their name, pray with them, and help come alongside them. And he taught us those things as a young kid. And it wasn't just that. Like, I remember him taking us out to dinner one evening, and there's a number of us with him that night, that night and he was with his wife, and we're sitting there at this table, and all of a sudden, just in the middle of the table, he's just looking at this guy that's sitting in the restaurant a little bit further away. And, and, and I'm like, okay, you're clearly distracted by something. And he's just looking, and he's like, guys, can you excuse me for a little bit? I, I need to go talk to that guy. And he gets up, and, and, and we overhear him, and he goes over there, and he just says, hey, sir, I know this may be awkward and stuff, but like, I'd love to buy your lunch today. Can I buy your, can I buy your lunch today? Like, I feel like I, I, I'd love to just bless you in that. And the guy gets, like, it was one of these things that God had already aligned, where there was, you know what I'm talking about? It was like, it wasn't one of these, you, what are you doing? You want to buy my lunch? Like, no one's offended by that, right? Like, the guy was like, you have no idea. Like, I, you have no idea the problems that I'm going through. And he got to sit down there, and he got to pray with this guy through his problems, and he got to share a meal, and he just got to go and, and bless this guy out of the abundance of everything that God has already given to him. Church, like, here's the deal. It doesn't take much to be generous. There's an absurd generosity in third world countries because they've been receiving from the abundance of generosity that's already been given to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, it does not take much to be generous. It's exactly what we see, remember, in the, the feeding of the 5,000. Aren't they all concerned about that? Lord, how in the world are you going to feed these crowds with only a few loaves of bread and fish? He's going, have you not seen who I am? Right? Like, this isn't a problem for me. Bring a few loaves of bread and some fish, and you, you won't believe what I can do to multiply that. Like you don't have to be Warren Buffett to be generous. He already owns it all. It's just a matter of trust and it's a matter of worship. That's it. Church, do we really trust that God will provide? And are we actually drinking deeply every single day from the radical grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's where it comes from. Let's pray together.